0: Please open your copies of God's Word to uh, the book of Ephesians and chapter 4. And as you know, this is our second overview and the second part of the two-part overview. And so in truth, we should read four chapters 4, 5 and 6, uh, but I will not... Um, put you through that directly, but we will read the first um, six verses of chapter 4, and we will be reading the odd verse here and there as we work our way through an overview to understand something that what's being said. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, please. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Amen. So as I just mentioned, this is the second part of the two-part overview. The first one was the first part was the doctrine in Ephesians as an overview, and that was chapters 1 to 3. And then we move on now to the duty in Ephesians. And again, that's a, as an overview of what we see in uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, and so we have the duty that springs forth from doctrine, as all, as all, uh, duty should, as all devotion should, everything that should be a fruit, and an active fruit, uh, a, charact- a character fruit, and we'll see that very shortly. That comes from, from forth from the doctrines that we've, that we've already uh, spoken of last time. And we could all come all the way back to these doctrines that we're only, allowed, we we're only enabled to live out in our lives because of the grace that has been granted us. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the grace we could say uh, of the gospel, the grace that is granted to us in the covenant of grace. And, and we looked last time, there was election, there was adoption, whereto we were predestinated. Um, there is uh, the redemption that we have that's all part of the same matter. So the work of the Father unto redemption, uh, the work of the, of the Son and the work of the Holy Ghost. And as that works its way forward, um, as, as the Holy Ghost is then busy in our lives applying these things to us, and still convicting us, thanks be to God, that the Holy Ghost still convicts us of sin. That we would not become arrogant and thinking, well, it's the decision I made 20 years ago, but yet I'm not walking as I should. But because, of, And that's an application of what we're learning. And that's exactly what Paul does in, verses, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's giving us so many wonderful doctrines and truths. And then, in truth, he, he begins to apply them in chapter 4. I, therefore, for the reasons I've been speaking of... And I am the prisoner of the Lord. I therefore beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So the first thing we see, then, as we're looking, and I think I brought it down to four or five points. Some of them are very brief. As we skim the surface to consider this application, this duty, is a call to Christian character, and that's what that's why how Paul begins this this part of the letter. I therefore beseech you, beseeching, pleading that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. It's clear then that there are certain of, if not many, of the Ephesian believers who weren't walking according to the calling, the vocation that they had to walk according uh, to Christ. And therefore he says, I beseech thee, I beseech you that ye walk worthy, a worthy, worthy of the vocation. And we're not going to go into the details, we've already done that. But firstly, we see a a call to walk in humility in verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. How is that a foreign language to your flesh and to mine? This is what the Lord desires of us. It's not what our flesh wants. If you see the words in verse 2, our flesh would prefer haughtiness, harshness, impatience, Intolerance that is how the flesh reacts, but here we have a have a, a different language because it 's from a different kingdom because it has a different source that it is to be all lowliness and meekness long suffering and forbearance, and it is a great vocation that we are called to a great calling to be holy as God is holy because god 's holiness it is not merely his righteousness. God's holiness It impacts all of his, let's use the theological term, his attributes, those aspects of his divine Godhead, his character. Again, we're, we're using language that we would understand him. I Maybe mean, we can't use the word character when we're considering the Godhead. A character belongs to a person, then we've got the three persons, but the three persons of the Godhead all share that that Godhead and that holiness is theirs as God is love and God is life and God is holy. And we see that their holy the God's holiness is not just that righteous and fearful holiness. It is, it is all of that. But God's holiness is also a lowly holiness. He's lowly there 's there's holiness in his meekness there 's holiness in his long suffering there 's holiness in his forbearance because it 's all pure it 's all pure this lowliness this meekness this long suffering this this forbearance as we consider these things, are we not reminded of christ as he 's revealed to us in the Gospels, and how the Lord dealt with many he dealt with many. Of his own disciples, he was lowly, meek, long-suffering, and full of forbearance. Of of the people that came to hear him, he was full of these wonderful truths, as he is to you and me. He is so full of, of lowliness to us. He comes down to our level, and, and, he, and he is soft and gentle with us, that meekness. He's so long-suffering. You and I all know how, how we, we, we fail the Lord, that we're, he knows how great a hypocrite we really are, and yet he has that long-suffering towards us, a sweet long-suffering and full of forbearance Oh, how he puts up with us because he's so loving. But because we know the other side to this holiness is the righteous and fearful rebuke that he gave to those in a religious authority who were to be the shepherds of Israel. But we're not. They were abusers of Israel. They were like hired shepherds and did not care for the sheep and certainly did not give not, give not their life for the sheep. So a, a call to walk in humility, and that is a Christ-likeness. A call to walk in unity as well, because of the unity that's in Christ. And we could go back to chapters 2 and 3 to, to work that through again. But he, he moves on here. He says there's a unity that we have in Christ, whether we're Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, whether we are Jew or Gentile. He makes it very clear there is one body. Now, that that sorts out dispensationalism in one fell swoop. There is one body, therefore there's one church, and one spirit. And he moves on. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And those two are, are linked because not only are we to have that, that, uh, that call to, be, uh, to walk in humility, but also we're a call to walk in unity. And what we find out is when those two are not present, or at least they're linked, because those who have egos that are out of control they may not have them on show, but where those egos are out of control, somewhere where there's something wrong. So we say where there's a spiritual malaise, and the ego is 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 not put in its place. The old man, we can say, instead of using that psychological term, let's say the old man of the flesh is not put in his place. He's not crucified, and his deeds are not mortified. Well, those are the ones that will sow disunity in the church. For whatever it is, it could be a, a small thing. Or it can be a big thing, or a small thing that develops into a big thing. But we've just understood that that call to walk is to walk as Christ, to walk in unity is because of Christ, and anything that disturbs that, let's make it very clear, is actually, they are found fighting against Christ. Fighting against Christ. So we have that call to walk uh, according to the call, of of a Christian character, we have a call to walk uh, in unity. He moves on to say there's a call to walk conscious. This is not a short title. Of the differing roles and callings that there are in the church. Again, there are callings as well. There are giftings uh, within the church. And and verse 11 starts that. And he gave some apostles and some prophets. It doesn't start, sorry, Verse 7 starts that. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then it goes on to talk about Christ, goes back into Old Testament prophecy to talk about Christ's ascension and the gifts that he pours out on the church. And, 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 And he does that on the basis of his resurrection and ascension. And we see that actually done in Pentecost where the gifts to the church are poured out through the work of the Spirit in the calling to these various officers. And he gives a number of officers, church officers here. He gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And what is the reason why the Lord did this? Just to build up a hierarchy? Well, if you look at the Roman church and other places, then you might get that impression. But it wasn't. It was for the good of the church. The gifts to the church. Uh, But notice that these are all prophetic officers. This is not every single office in the church. These are the prophetic officers. These are the the officers of the church that speak the Word of God, teach the Word of God, announce the Gospel of God, and we can see that all here. So not every office bearer is mentioned. He's, he's, He's talking about these specific gifts are for the good of the church because they minister the Word of God to the church in different ways. Even calling those into the church, we could say, in the evangelist. And teachers' roles. And so the role is, for the good of the church, yes, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, their completion, their building up, their maturity, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, and the more we come under the means of grace, and the more we're getting all the counsel of God, the more we're understanding who this God is. The the more we will fear Him, the more we will love Him, the more we will live for Him, and more the body becomes mature and and ripened. And that's what the Lord wants: mature and ripe fruit. And Paul goes on to expand upon that in some detail until verse sixteen. And so if these offices are the gifts of Christ to the church, which they are, which is what the Scriptures say here, then it's the responsibility for the office-bearer to be a gift to the flock, to be a good gift, even with all the human failings that every every office-bearer has, the prophetic office-bearer. But it's also the responsibility of the flock to value that gift. So it's a certainly two-sided responsibility, not because... That gift suits you perfectly, not because you like the sound of that gift, but because Christ has called them and sent them as that gift. Fourthly, there's a call to walk separated. A walk to call separated, uh, uh, a w- call to walk separated, and we see there in verse seventeen. This I say, therefore. He says all of that and testifying the Lord that you henceforth, th- henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And he continues in many descriptions of how the Gentiles walk. So they are to be separate from other Gentiles. So here we have a Gentile church, a church in a Gentile area, and, and, and but they are to be separate from other Gentiles course they are, because they are one body with the Jews, and as the Jews were said, were commanded and instructed to be separate from all the the nations around them, and so when we have these who are added to the one people of God, they are also to be separate from all the nations around them, as we are, to be separate. So if the Lord says that we're to do something, we are to do it, regardless of whether the world accepts it approves of it, or even tolerates it. That the world is never our standard. Christ is our standard. Christ's Word is our standard. So whether our flesh likes it, the world likes it, and of course the devil won't like it, we will do it anyway. So we're to be separate from other Gentiles. We're to be separate from other Calgarians. But we're also to be separate now on a personal level from the old man of the flesh. So the born-again spirit, the born-again soul is to live is to have the uh, is to be separate from the desires of the old man of flesh to to control those those desires and he gives a number of those desires here he he mentions specifically lying, which he then he comes back to in verse twenty nine so he opens that up in verse uh twenty five and he comes back to that in verse twenty nine let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth and again we're not deep diving in on this, but he talks about lying. He talks about anger. Of course, anger very often leads to leads to all sorts of sins against somebody that you, because anger is, in many ways, it is a it is the language of pride. But it is an expression of hate. It's not always, but most of our anger most of our anger is is unholy anger. Here we talk about righteous anger in the scriptures. We can be very sure that Christ's anger in the temple was both on both occasions a righteous anger. We cannot be so sure of our own anger, at all, as it's so commingled with, with our own flesh. But so he points to lying and to anger and then to theft, because of course the old man of the flesh he lives to break the law of God. That's, that's his own, as we've already mentioned at the very beginning there. You know, loneliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. No, and what we get the example is what the flesh does. It hates, it argues, it bickers, it brings its fists out. That is not of God. It is of the flesh. So we're to be separate from other Gentiles, separate from, well, our old nature, and we're to be separated unto Christ. In verses, the end of verse 29... He says, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And he continues, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So do away with the old man. Do away with the old lifestyle. Unfortunately, it is not the case The bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking have gone from the church. But they should be. That's Christ's standard. The standard of the flesh, the standard of the devil is bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking. So let it not be found. Let it be put away from you. It also means if anyone comes to you with these things, with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour. You know, I don't want to hear that gossip. I don't want to hear that talk. It is, according to the word of God, to be put away from you. That's the sort of thing that we do not forbear. But it it is to be put away in love. What does he say? I think we're not quite there yet. But I think Ephesians 4 and verse 32, not that I approve of tattoos by any means, but if anything should be tattooed onto our foreheads or on the inside of the eyelids. Uh, Horrible, (laughs) horrible idea. But in the sense of, let's just say, engraven upon the heart, that's what was better said, is verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You know, we could expand that we to expand what it says here. Be kind one to another, even as God for Christ's sake hath been kind to you and is kind to you. Be tender-hearted one to another, even as God for Christ's sake is tender-hearted towards you, as well as forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Because it's very true. The kindness and the tender-heartedness and the, and the free forgiveness that we receive from God for Christ's sake... If we've received all that, why did we not then give it? we received all of those graciously. Ah, we're coming back to grace, yes. We're coming back to the grace of God. So if God has been so gracious to you, be gracious to others. Do they deserve it? No. Did you deserve it? Absolutely not. Ephesians 4.32. So a call to Christian character. Secondly, uh, to be children of light. To be children of light, I think you find these points will go a little quicker. Children of light. Well, if we are the children of God, then we are to live, and we come back to what he's been saying already, we are to live like the Son of God. Be therefore followers, God, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. You see, it's... it's, it's and, and we will see that as we continue on, although we won't go into the detail. It's just the comparison with Christ the whole time. This is who Christ is, this is who we should be. This is what Christ's character is, this is what our character is to be. So we're firstly to be, the first six verses say that we are to be children of love. I mean that's compacting it down. Again he speaks about those things of the flesh, that they shouldn't even be on the lips of the children of love. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Again, bringing us back to the sacrifice of Christ, because Christ so loved us that he gave himself for us, therefore we should be children of love. We should love each other. We should love him, and we should love each other. He notices there are people in the church very broadly speaking, who will emphasise our love to our fellow man and have no love to God because they do not keep his commandments. They don't even love his word. They don't even believe his word. They don't even believe him. In fact, they, they mistrust him and despise him and his way of salvation. But they're so focused upon on humans and on all this, these aspects of tolerance and, and whatever. And then you have another extreme where people have a lot of bad behaviour towards other people and yet say that they love God, that, the, that they love God, that God loves them, that they have such a, a wonderful inner walk with God, and yet you don't see any of that, or much of it, in how they treat other Christians. Again, that may be coming back to those words that we've all read, bitterness, wrath, anger and clamour and evil speaking. But that's neither of those two are biblical They are going to the left or to the right, but they are not the walk that God commands, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves, which means we would love our neighbor exceptionally greatly. But we are, according to these first six verses, and we won't go into all the details, we are to be children of love. But moving on, we're to be children of light, verses 7 to 14. That ye be ye not partakers with them, with those wickednesses that he's just described. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. And there's so much that is said here about that lightness. It, it talks about our behavior that people see. It talks about the behavior that people don't see. That we are to be open and honest. Because everything that is done will be made manifest one day or other. And that's what light does. What whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Not only children of love and children of light, but children of wisdom as well. When he moves on, verses 15 to 21, that that there is a wise way of living. Not as a fool. And certainly not as a fool that, uh, that takes truth from YouTube. In general, That contradicts the Bible, of course. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. It's very encouraging, actually, that in a way, that even in the day of Paul and the day of the first Ephesian church, that they also had problems with redeeming the time. And we just think, well, it's because of this apparatus and it's this uh, tablet and whatever. But all throughout the centuries, that's always been the case. They, they are the things that, are, that, are, that, that say, ab- absorb our time now. But what, what was it just a few generations ago? Maybe someone was obsessed with reading the newspapers, and they would buy two or three newspapers every single day, and they, they'd be reading them all evening. Of course, television took over most of that. So entertainment. Entertainment's always been a great distraction. But even they were, were commanded to redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, do something good with the time... And and, and even though the thing that you're doing is not evil, it's not making good use of the time. These days are evil. The the time for for, for the Gospel and for the Great Commission is limited. We are in the last of the last days, and so therefore we are to redeem the time. I do realise I'm preaching to me as well as to you. This is not me uh, standing above you in any way. The Word must come to us all. And correct us all. And so we are to be children of wisdom in everything we have. And then we move on to our third point, which is Christ-like submission. Christ-like submission, notice when we look from verse 21 onwards. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Technically that could be part of, it is part of a previous sentence. But as I mentioned when we went through this, it lays the groundwork for what we then read in verses 22-22. Uh, Not quite to the end. Well, yes, to the end of the chapter, up to and including verse 9 of chapter 6, that section. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. We see wives and husbands, then we see children and parents, and then we see servants and masters. But notice how the emphasis is given to the more submissive role here, as if to give greater honour to it. And actually, that's exactly what we read here. The greater honor, greater time is spent, and maybe not verses, but there is, there is an honor that's given to him. He speaks to the ladies first. Wives are to be submitted to their husbands as they are to be submitted to Christ. So if ladies, if you are submitted to your husband, if you are submitted to Christ, then you are to be submitted to your husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And there's so much in there, but he loves the church. And so husbands are also to love their wives. Again, we won't open up, up uh, much of that now because we've already done so. And then he, But he concludes it by saying, because marriage itself reflects the very gospel mystery that there's a heavenly bridegroom for an earthly church, for an earthly bride, a bride that he found and is still finding. But, uh, but consider who he is as the king, as a glorious and pure, uh, divine prince and bridegroom. And what he finds as a bride... But all that he does for that bride, he has died for her, he has bled for her, he has humbled herself, himself for her, and he's now praying for her, and he's poured out his Spirit so everything that is in Christ, as it were, of this infinite and eternal Son of God poured out to present to himself a glorious church. It's, it's hardly worth, hardly understandable. Uh, when we look at the church and we look at ourselves to think, uh, because we are Ill, we who are um, true believers in Christ are parts of this body, of this church, of this bride, and so one day what it says here about the church in general... Um, it's speaking of us individually as well, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That you, believer, when Christ completes that work, that you yourself will be glorious, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without blemish, pure, pure that the pure Son of God become man, the pure Prince of Peace, will make us, each and every one of us, absolutely pure forever and ever. So we have that wonderful truth that Christ loves his church, and therefore men, husbands, we are to love our wives. But we can't do it by ourselves. We must go to uh, the, the heavenly bridegroom and seek the help, knowing how he wants us to live, and then going to him for the strength to apply that in our lives. Wives and husbands, then we have children and parents. I could just refer you to the fifth commandment uh, as we were looking at on the last Lord's Day. adult Bible class. But we, what we have here is we have an encouragement, beginning of chapter 6, and an exhortation taken from the fifth commandment. To the Children, children, come on. Obey your parents. Do it for Christ. Do it in Christ, because there's a wonderful promise that hangs on this commandment. A wonderful promise. As an encouragement. Children, I see three children. Well, we're all children, these children, but three, three minors are here this evening. But this is an encouragement that you have from the Lord himself. Obey your parents, it says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's correct. It's righteous to do so. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. See, and if you were here, which you were because you were in Sabbath school, there were two things, prosperity and a long life. Prosperity and a long life. So you don't want a long life where you don't have that prosperity of health and whatever, that you're poor and crippled for the last 30 years of your life. That, that's, not, that, that's a long life without the blessing. That no, You want the blessing and the long life, and that's what the Lord says. That's what the Lord gives as a general rule to those that would be obedient to their parents. It's an encouragement to children and an exhortation. Then there's the warning that's given to the fathers that they wouldn't be so hard and so harsh and so embittered that they would cause their children to be angry and bitter because they are as hard as concrete. No, but there's a warning given to the fathers so that the children would obey every commandment. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture And admonition of that nurtures food, that you're being fed by the Word of God and you're being admonished by the Word of God. Warned, that means. And then thirdly, we move on to servants and masters. Servants and masters. A Christian servant is to serve his master as if serving Christ. And a Christian master is to treat his servant in the fear of Christ. And we'll move on from there. That's, that's Ephesians 6 5 to 9. And then brings us to the last major section uh, from verse 10. So we've had a call to Christian character, a, um, a call to be children of light, a call to Christ like submission. And now we have the Christian armor. The Christian armor that we see when he says, Put on, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the cunning tricks of the devil. You know, as much as we might see enemies in the world, and we do, and in politics and in society, even uh, in the church, either large-scale enemies of doctrine and the gospel, or even personal attacks from carnal Christians or weak Christians in the congregation, we're never to forget that profound truth that we have in verse 12. Of chapter six, and we know this verse: For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, in other words, behind it all, the devil's at work. Even a miscommunication between you and another Christian—yeah, that could be—the devil's at work in some way. Are we to be so obsessed with the devil like Martin Luther was? No, I don't think so, because I don't see that in the Scriptures. This is taken as a fact. By the way, Christian, the devil's behind all of this wickedness. The devil's behind all of this that's going on in the world, and you need to stand against it. But are we told then to be obsessed about the devils or to have books on demonology and all this, that, and the other? Not at all. Not at all. We're to know, we're to understand enough, to understand his methods as much as the Scriptures tell us and teach us. And that's enough. That's more than enough. We have sufficiency in the revealed Word of God. So we have the, the warfare that we, we are to deal with, and therefore he says, Wherefore, for which reason take unto you the whole armor of God? And these things are all to be put on together. This is not something that we then we go through in some sort of way. Essentially, they're all done at conversion, but we are reminded of them here that we have these things that we are to use them, to make use of them, to exercise them, to be proficient in them. And I'll just sum it up as I've already summed it up earlier on when we worked, worked through the, the whole armour of God. The belt of truth that puts and keeps everything in place. So we're, to be, we're not to have any corrupt communication, the apostles just said. That a truth should be who we are. Truth should be how we live. Truthful with each other, truthful with our neighbours, truthful towards ourselves. And that's a difficult thing because the old man of the flesh is a liar, like his father the devil. But the new man, uh, the new you, by the rebirth, is to be one of truth. And so when the Word says something to you you don't like, it's not a matter of ignoring it or pretending you didn't understand it because that's all of a lie. But we ought to be truthful towards ourselves, which means when we are truthful to ourselves, it means we are able to repent of that thing that we've just heard in the preaching, or that thing that we read in the Bible this morning, or we see something and the Holy Spirit reminds us of something that we still have in, in the past and we have never really dealt with. And so we're to repent, but you can't repent if you're lying to yourself that you have no reason to. Repent. So the belt of truth, it puts and keeps everything in place. It's the core of the Christian. Of course, it is, tr- it is Christ. Christ is the truth. Then the breastplate of righteousness. Of course, this breastplate of righteousness protects... A breastplate protects everything, but the righteousness of Christ that we have protects everything. It protects us. It protects the, the, you know, the vitals of the body physically, but spiritually, as we're understanding it, it protects the soul of the believer... The breastplate of righteousness. Much to be said, but we've already said much. The shoes of readiness, the foundation of everything the soldier of Christ does. There's there's preparation. You're prepared. You're ready. You're ready to do whatever the Lord tells you to do. But as I said, it is the foundation of, 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 of who we are in Christ to stand and to stand well. The shield of faith. We see also in Christ that gives protection. It gives us that protection from the attacks. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Faith. If we truly, genuinely know the Word of God, know how to understand the Word of God, and there are many in the Christian church that don't. I mean, that's not to sound arrogant, but we know that there are, we know that you, have the, you have the Mennonites and you have the Roman Catholics and you Greek Orthodox and they seem to sort of pick and mix and have all sorts of ideas or the over-literalists of the, of, of the independent fundamentalists. And, 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 you know, so much of it, parts of it are so good, but other things are wrong because the understanding of how, how, to, how revelation is taken, it is not more faithful to take everything literally because the Bible does not teach that. If the Bible said, take everything literally, then it would be a sign of orthodoxy and faithfulness to take everything literally. But Christ, when he said, oh, how, how I have longed as he, as he, as he wept over Jerusalem, or how long I have desired to take you as a mother hen would take her chicks, does that mean Christ at that moment literally transforms into a mother hen? That is a wooden understanding and a literal understanding. Of course it's not. It's metaphor. He's using this language um, to, to explain something that, um, to, to reveal unto us, even unto that city that was under his wrath and condemnation and judgment, and yet the heart that he had for that place where the temple was, where he had put his name, where he had called his people to, where he would gather with his people those three times every year, and the people themselves, the offspring of Abraham that he wept because he knew that his judgment was very close. Forty years hence, and it would be destroyed. Millions dying, according to Josephus the historian. And so, yeah, we are to take the Word and the Word of faith, and it protects us when we fully understand the Scriptures. The shield of faith, and then we have finally the helmet of salvation as it were, protecting us from our head onto our head. From the head, that is Christ, onto our head. And they are the, that's the armour. And then we have the weapons. The, and we have two weapons, really, that are said here. I may not have described that when we were going through it, but as I've re- been reviewing it, we have the sword of the Spirit, that is the Scriptures. It relates to what I've just been speaking of. As Hebrews 11 and verse 1 and 2 and 3 teaches very clearly, what faith is. Faith is founded upon the Word of God and the promises of God in the Word. Although let's not distinguish them. The Word is the promise of God. So that's the sword of the Spirit are the Scriptures. We do not have the Spirit if we do not have the Scriptures. And So, that, so the charismatic... I, I read this week a poll that had been taken. I don't know if it was North America or just the US but it was talking about how many evangelicals there were that believed a, a monstrous truth that they believed that the Holy Spirit could tell them to do something that the scriptures told them not to. And I think we know enough of evangelicalism to know that's true. That many people have been taught, you know, you'd be, be led by the Spirit. And I, I know an example of a couple, two couples. In, in, in the Netherlands, and one of them was a worship leader and the other one was a musician or something, maybe from two separate churches. But they both left their own wives. They committed adultery with each other and got married or whatever and said that, no, oh, this, this is the Holy Spirit that told them to do this. That's just a prime example of what of what, uh, of what I just recently read. And, and, and it is an astonishing amount uh, and a majority or a large minority of evangelicals in North America that think so. And that's, and that's, that's the effect and the influence of, of the charismatic movement upon the church in general. They have said, well, we don't need the word, and they misuse the words. You know that the law is dead, and the letter is dead, but the spirit is life. And completely misunderstanding the gospel point of what Paul is writing at that point, And saying, yeah, so we don't need the word, the word's all dead, it's, it's, it's legalist, it's old-fashioned, it's, it's Calvinist or whatever. No, we just need the spirit, which leads them. And their idea of the spirit... Let's just say, on the one hand, the human emotion, but let's just move further on. And then we get to dealing with the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So we see the devil as at work there in convincing Christians or in the professing church that the Scriptures are one thing and the Spirit is another. Baloney. Nonsense. The Spirit and the Word. Not either or. Yes, you do have legalistic Christians. And they're dead. They're dead in their own transgressions and sins. They're dead in their walk. And for them the the book of the book of the book of God is there to be used as a as a baseball bat against other Christians. And then you have those others, as I've already mentioned, they talk about the Spirit and they refuse to have the Word. Brethren and sisters, we need both. We need the Word and the Spirit, and they will not contradict each other. The Spirit of God is not a liar. He is no man that he should lie. And so he speaks as he writes or has had written. So the weapons are the sword of the Spirit, and then secondly, the supplication in the Spirit. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And so we see there the use of prayer. We've looked at that already. With all perseverance, continuing in prayer, supplication for all saints. And then we moved on, not just for all saints, but also for Paul and for all ministers, for help and boldness to be granted. And I'm not too sure if I brought this in at the time But we see in verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, even to protect God's servants when they are in affliction. Which brings us back to the sermon on Lord's Day morning. Fifthly, Christ's blessings, finally. And we see in verses 21 to 22, that Christ is building his church. But that you also may know my affairs and how I do in his missionary work. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister and the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose. It's great to know. It's great to get these reports, to get this news, as we did recently, uh, from Mexico and from um, and from a- a- around around uh, North America, a few places, that the Lord is still building His church. It's so easy when we look around the world, or look around Canada, look around Calgary. And then we walk by sight and not by faith, but let's walk by faith and not by sight and know that Christ is still building his church. It it may be the day of small things in this particular geographical location, but Christ is, is still building it, and not only is he still building it, but he's still blessing it. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And with that blessing of Christ upon his church, we will uh, finish our overview and see again from beginning to end, it's all of grace. From beginning to end, it's all about Christ because even the Father sends Christ and the Spirit applies Christ. And then we are to live for Christ and as Christ in all of this. So grace, Christ. granted to us. We could say Christ is grace. He is granted to us who do not deserve him. We'll leave that there. We ran a little bit over time. Amen.